How many, how many of you here love fishing? Fishing. Yes? Quite a lot. Very good. I don't. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you one story. I was, I was told there was a man who loves fishing. Uh, but every time he caught a big fish, for some strange reason, he kept throwing back into the lake. And, but each time he caught a small one, uh, he kept it. Uh, anyone do that? Uh, and so a, a mystified bystander, uh, observing his peculiar process of selection, decided to ask him, what on earth he was doing. And so with a smile, the man simply replied by saying, well, I only have an eight-inch frying pan. <laughs> so the larger fish just won't fit into my eight-inch frying pan. And, uh, and that is our trouble, isn't it? Uh, many skeptics uh, reject God because God won't fit into their naturalistic philosophical frying pan. And the truth is there are realities which go beyond our limited paradigm. And to reject them because they do not fit our limited scientific category is to actually to become a very poor metaphysical fisherman. And... Uh, and the question I want to ask today, as I, on Palm Sunday, this week is a dirty week, it's a bloody week, it's a messy week uh, in the first century. Uh, lots of blood, betray, uh, death, and all kinds of things happened. And it's a reflection of human suffering in some sense, uh, of what Jesus on the cross. And so today I want to do something by reflection on that, along the line of suffering and pain, uh, which is something that many people don't understand. You just can't fit into our, our eight-inch frying pan. The 18th century agnostic philosopher David Hume uh, summarized the problem of why God doesn't remove problem from people's lives. And this is what he said. He said, if God is able to take the hurt away, but is not willing, then he is a malevolent evil God but if God is willing but yet he's not able then he's an impotent God a weak God and if he's able and willing then why doesn't he do something about it uh, H.G. Wells the British novelist uh, commenting during the Second World War he said if I felt there was an omnipotent omnipotent means unlimited powerful God who looked down on battles and deaths and all the ways and horror of this war able to prevent these things yet doing things doing them to amuse himself I would spit into his empty face or Edward Tabas uh, whose grandfather and father died in the holocaust and all that uh, it's a vehement atheist. He said, if God of the Bible actually exists, I want to sue him for negligence, for being asleep at the will of the universe where my grandfather and uncle were guests to death in Auschwitz. So these are real hardcore issues 
uh, that we have to stay stay in the face of this God we worship, who is all powerful, all knowing, all presence, and yet at the same time, evil and suffering exist. And how do we square that in the sense? But I have learned over the years as a believer that uh, uh, actually we we actually need a God we cannot understand. Uh, we need a God we cannot understand. You, you don't want to believe in a God that you can understand. Uh, the difference is it's not that we cannot know God. Whatever that God wants us to know, He has revealed to us. But there are some ways, some things that He does is beyond our 8-inch frying pan to be able to comprehend. And we should be glad. We should be glad. I'll tell you why we should be glad later on. Uh, but I just want to kickstart with this simple verse that we are told in Scripture in Isaiah 40. Uh, they said, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Think of that. He will not grow tired or weary. And His understanding, no one can fathom. No one can fathom. His understanding, no one can fathom. You cannot find a verse in the Bible that God is actually telling us to understand Him. Never can you find that verse. If you can find one verse, please come and see me. Show it to me. There's no verses in the Bible that God said, please understand me. You know, we like to do that sometimes, whether you talk to your wife or your children or your husband, you know, and then you present your case. You know, please understand. You know, it's hard to present something to someone who's completely illogical or unreasonable. Come on, understand. But God will never do that to us. All that He asks us is to trust Him, never to understand Him. That means to say that God can do things that I may not agree or I even like. He can allow things to happen that I will never understand. He can accept people that I may never accept. I painfully learned that He's God and I'm not. Aren't you glad? If you are God or I'm God, what will happen? What will happen? Isn't it? There's a movie that says 24 hours, you can do everything you want that you're not accountable for and most people do evil things. Our study will take us for, to the book of Job this morning. Job was a man who came to understanding that he didn't understand God. And he, at the end of it, he has to humble himself along with his friends, or so-called friends. He thought they have God figured out when it came to human suffering. Uh, his friends said one thing, and then Job said another thing. And, but both discovered that God was more complex than what their finite minds would comprehend. And I don't think our finite minds, even with all our science and technology, can do any better. We have put God in a box for far too long, but God is far bigger than we can ever imagine. Remember the verse in Ephesians 3.20 about the pronouncement of benediction that this God is able to do exceedingly, incredibly, even more than we could even ask or imagine? I always find it puzzling. You know why? Because I, under I can understand the word ask, because when you ask, there's a limit to it. But... What is the cap or, or, or limit to your imagination? Is there any limit to your imagination? But here it said that God can do far greater than your finite mind can ever imagine. Isn't that amazing? That means to say what you ask is too small and too little. That when we see God, 
this finite mind will probably blow up. So we're going to take a look at this, uh, this man who thought he had God figured out, which is Job. We first find Job with everything going for him. He had everything that a man could possibly want on earth. He was rich. He had a fine family. He had friends. He had health. He has everything. In fact, he even had an endorsement from God. Look at what God said of him to Satan. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? This is God said of him. Huh? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless. He is upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Now That's pretty good reference, isn't it? From God. So he, he has riches, he has friends, he has everything going for him. And then all of a sudden, sudden, things begin to fall apart. He lost his children, he lost his riches, he lost his health. And then even his wife asked him to curse God and died. And then he found that his friends weren't so good after all. When you go through hard times, you discover who are your true friends. And they came to comfort him during his loss and sickness. But indeed, as you begin to read the book of Job, you realize they were actually not there to comfort him at all. They were there to accuse him that he must have done something wrong in his life. He must have sinned. And therefore, God is actually punishing him for his sin. They brought, God brought all these calamities on him because of sin. But Job insisted that he had done nothing wrong. And yet he also believed that God brought all of this hardship on him, but for no just reason. He said, God, what have I done to deserve this? Haven't we said that to God before? And he began to wallow in self-pity. And then he and his friend argued back and forth, back and forth. That friend said one thing, he answered, no, no, I didn't do this, ding, 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 dong, throughout. And then finally he asked God, he said, God, I want to see you. I want an answer from you. I want to know why I'm going through this. Be careful what you ask God because you might get what you want. Oscar Wilde used to say that there are two tragedies in this life. One is to not get what you want and the other is to get what you want. Sometimes both are tragedies. And he asked God, God, I want an audience with you. I want to ask you why am I going through this? And God actually answered his prayer. God said, all right, you have it. I'm going to come to you. And if you have a chance this afternoon, please go back and read Job 38, 39, 40, 41. Four chapters. Four chapters. And in that four chapters, God begins to question Job. Depending on how you want to count that, some say that there are 66 questions there. Some say there are 44 questions. Some 73 questions. Uh, you can try to count. God asked Job. I think personally, I think there are 66 questions there. God asked Job 66 questions with no answer. One after another. Go and read it. And you will be amazed. Some uh, uh, Caroline has read to us just now. He asked God, I mean, God asked Job concerning about the earth, concerning about the sea, concerning about morning and dawn. Let me just read some to you, okay? Some, uh, Job 38 verse 2. The Lord answered Job out of the storm. 
right? He asked, you, you want to see me? God said, all right, I'll come, I'll come to see you. And then God began to ask Job 66 questions. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without a knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. God can be a bit sarcastic, isn't it? Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who did that, Job? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea beyond doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the cloud clouds its garment and wrap it in dark, thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its door and bars in place. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the ages and shake the wicked out of it? And on and on and on and on, God asked Job, so many questions related to the earth, related to the sea, related to the morning and dawn, regarding the depths and expanses of the earth and the gates of death, regarding the way of light and the place of darkness, regarding the weather and the scattering of light and wind, regarding the stars with all their constellations, regarding the floods, regarding about the animals, all that God asked, where were you? Job, tell me, where were you? When I did all these things, where were you, Job? Were you there? Were you assisting me? And so for four chapters, God pounded Job one question after another. And Job stands there, probably with his mouth wide open, not saying a word. And finally, this is what he answers. After all those questions that God asked him, this is what Job answered. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You say, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job couldn't answer a single question and God knew it and what was God trying to what point was God making I think God was simply saying to Job he said Job I actually don't need you to be smart I don't need, I don't need you to explain to me to the world I sometimes think that we defend God too much God is quite capable of able to defend for himself I don't need you to solve the problems of life. I don't even need you to understand me. All I need from you, Job, is absolute faith in me. 
God has never demanded that we understand Him just to trust Him, as I already said. Until you know, God is almost saying to Job, Job, until you know a little more about running the physical universe, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. So I find that scientists are pretty, pretty, pretty arrogant. They can't even explain what, and they want to explain why. If we, like Job, are so ignorant about the wonders of the world we live in, a world we can see and touch, who are we to sit in judgment of God's moral government of the universe? And until we are wise enough to orchestrate even the blizzard or even manufacture a single perfect snowflake, we have no grounds to sue God. Let him who is about to accuse God consider the greatness of the God accused. Uh, Caroline read a verse in Job 26, verse uh, 14. Read through chapter 26. You'll be amazed. It talks about God's creation. That God spreads out the northern skies over, uh, over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the water in His clouds. And yet the clouds do not burst under his, their weight. He covers the face of the full moon spreading his clouds over it. He marks the horizon on the face of the water for a boundary between light and, and darkness and this and this and this and this. And then verse 16 or verse 14, it simply just said, oh well, these are just about the outer fringe of his work. And it's almost like, this is nothing. In Cantonese, we call it sap sap soya. You know, it's, it's nothing. All this creation, this is nothing. It's just like uh, yesterday, I received a check from from someone building fund, I've been harassing the person to give money to the building fund, and he just think, oh, "Give me fifteen thousand dollars," you know. And fifteen thousand to him is, is nothing. You know? It's almost nothing. It's almost asking asking a, a Bill Gates to to give hundred thousand know? dollars. It's nothing. And here, here describe about God's creation, and then simply in verse fourteen, just slot in here and say, "These are nothing. These are." but the outer fringe of His works. How faint the whisper we hear of Him. And so there's one thing that we cannot understand about God's work, ways, is suffering of the ungodly, isn't it? Suffering even of the godly. There are many people who suffer. Uh, how do we explain? How are we going to explain to people's suffering, people's pain, People can do everything correct and yet still suffer. How do we explain? And look at what uh, Job's friend, or seemingly friend, Eliphaz, said to Job when Job was suffering. This is what he said to Job, okay? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished, he said. Because he's trying to accuse Job that it is due to Job's sin that he is suffering. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of His anger, they are no more. See how he was trying to explain Job's suffering, Job's pain, Job losing his friends, his family, illness, riches, and all that. It's because of you, because of your sin that God is punishing you. 
And how about John chapter 9, the famous passage where the disciples asked Jesus about the man born blind. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And what did Jesus say? It was not because of his sins. Neither was his parents' sin. This happened so the power of God would be seen in him. It's not because of his sin. He was born blind. It's not even because of his parents' sin that he inherited so-called generational curse or whatever. All these people like to use it, you know. Uh, that the subsequent generation suffer as a result of one generation. And look at, look at uh, Luke chapter 13. Someone suffered from disaster and all the kinds of... Look at what Jesus said. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. And Jesus said, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked, Is that why they suffered? Not at all! And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No! And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. And we've got to learn how to reserve our judgment, suspend certain things of God's doing. And uh, God's way of doing things sometimes is beyond our comprehension. And that is why God rebuked Job's friend. You know what God asked Job's friends to do after that? In 42, it says that. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, this is what he says to him, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. You misrepresented me. You think you know me. You are wrong. You did not. You have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job does. Now go and offer sacrifices and I'm going to ask Job to pray over you. And when Job pray over you, I will forgive and I will restore you. So it's important for us to recognize that sometimes God's ways are beyond our finite mind to comprehend Him. Why, need, why I need a God I can't understand? i tell you what, three things very quickly. I know I have to finish before morning tea at 10.45. Why I need a God I can't understand? Because to understand God is to make Him my equal. And you don't want that. You don't want to worship a God that is your equal. What for? Even any normal mental situation, you look up to someone who is probably more experienced, a bit more older, who has something expert in the particular field that can mentor you. So why do you want to have a God that we completely can understand? To understand God is to make Him my equal. You don't want a God that is your equal. You must say, don't believe in God. You want to believe in a God, you know that this God is a big, like what Richard Dawkins says, isn't it? If I want to believe in God, I want this God to be big. Number two, to understand God is to make Him too small. To understand God is to make Him too small. 
God's way of working, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, in his book, How Long God, he, oh Lord, he said, God's way of working defiles our attempt to tame it by reasons. I do, not mean it, I do not mean it is illogical. I mean that we do not know enough to be able to unpack it and domesticate it. As finite fallen creatures, we need to swallow our pride and accept that God's ways are beyond tracing out. Refusing to do so and claiming that the existence of evil rules out our creation by a wise and loving God is irrational, illogical, and even unbiblical. So to understand God is to make Him too small. And thirdly, to understand God is to limit Him. And you don't want to limit God. You cannot limit God. You cannot contain Him. He is far too great. And to understand God is to limit Him. Aren't you glad that God did not answer many of your prayers? And aren't you glad that God loves you too much in not answering your prayers at times? I'm so glad that God did not answer many of my seemingly limited, selfish type of asking from God. You know, for 15 years, uh, this lady called Monica prayed for her son as he indulged his senses and investigated exotic philosophies. And when he finally... Uh, converted uh, these were the experiences that gave depth and rich, richness to his writing allow him to set the course of Christian thought for a century and once the mother Monica uh, prayed all night God would stop her son from going to wicked Rome but he tricked her and sailed away and precisely it was on that trip that he became a Christian and reflecting later this man said that God denied his mother once in order to grant her what she had prayed for always. You know who's the man? St. Augustine. He said, God denied my mother pray to stop me from going to Rome. But precisely I went there, I got converted. God denied my mother once in order to grant her what she had prayed for always. And it is Schaefer, the daughter of missionaries, tell of uh, the successor to Huxon Taylor, that time was known as CIM, Dr. Host. She related this story. Dr. Host was, he succeeded Huxon Taylor as the leader of China Inland Mission. And one of his habits is that he would spend four hours every morning to pray for every single missionary under his care, under his organization. Four hours, he will walk and he will pray. He counted that task his chief responsibility as leader of the mission, and he mentioned each missionary and child by name. And within a few years, however, Chairman Mao would evict all 7,000 missionaries from China, including all those for whom Hoyce prayed for. They relocated, they relocated to places like Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong. Dismay what might happen to the fledging church in China, now bereaved of outside help. But in their absence, under a dictatorial regime that forbade Christian evangelism, the greatest numerical revival in history broke out. What happened in China and is happening now 
exceeds beyond all dreams the prayer request of the missionaries of 1950. God denied his prayer. God did not answer his prayer because God's way is beyond tracing out. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. We cannot understand God. They call this keyhole theology. You're looking through a keyhole. You know that? When you're looking through a keyhole, you can only see straight. I can only see Jeff. Jeff, I'm seeing you. I can't see many people here. It's called keyhole theology. But God has a vision that is all, isn't it? So we do want to limit God. To understand God is to limit Him. And Proverbs chapter 3 probably is the verse that we are all so familiar with that we need to remember. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what will He do? He will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. Human suffering is a mystery. It is a mystery. But the beautiful thing about the cross and the Passion Week and the Good Friday is as what uh, uh, Jürgen Mockman uh, in one of his books called The Crucified God uh, quotes another survivor of the Auschwitz describing how the SS hanged two Jewish men and a youth in front of the whole camp. And the man died quickly, but it took the youth longer to die. And one Jew, forced to watch, asked the question, Where is God? Where is He? Later on, as the youth, youth still hung in torment in the noose, the man called again, Where is God now? And I heard a voice in myself, the author say, Where is He? He is here. He is hanging there on the gallows. Think about human suffering. We cannot understand. The comfort is that God suffers with us. And He knows what suffering is all about. Let me close with this story. Uh, taken from Ravi Zacharias, the uh, Christian apologist, in the book called Can Men Live Without God? Zacharias says that the understanding the cross helped him to process the pain and suffering that is ever present in this world. He said, a short while ago, I was preaching in Belgium and one of my interpreters was named by the name of Wilfred. He was driving me to my engagement and I began talking to him. There was something about his demeanor, he says, that endeared him to me as a gentle individual who had experienced some of life's pains and who had been scarred by carrying its heavier burdens. And he began to tell me how it was that he came to commit his life to the person of Jesus Christ and how extremely his, this commitment had been tested. He told of how he had been attending a conference in Switzerland some years ago. He described the unfolding events of one fateful day the hymns resounded all day on the reality of heaven and the speakers expounded on it. I was basking in the greatness of this hope and enjoying the promise of such a destiny. And then quite unexpectedly, my name was called during the meeting to go immediately to the office as there uh, was a phone call for me. 
urgent phone call waiting for me. I did just that and I picked up the phone to hear the sober and sobbing voice of my wife informing me that our nice month old baby had without warning died in his crib a short while ago. And, and Wilfred recounted, recounted that the news brought him to the lowest point in his life. The devastation defiled description. The anguish and anger built up within his heart to volcanic proportions, threatening to spill out his uncontainable grief. A cry within him wanted to sue God for contempt of human life. So ran the litany of emotions that spelled one basic feeling, that of absolute bewilderment. He packed his bags, bought himself a train ticket, and sat alone in his seat looking out through the window where nothing seems to ease the pain and the ache. And across the aisles from him sat a man reading his Bible. And opposite whom, two young people who did not try to hide their disdain towards so-called religious books. Their taunts were finally responded to by the man holding the Bible, and their discussion took on some heavy philosophical jostling. Finally, one of the young men, angered and must, leaned over and said to the man, If your God is as loving and kind as you say He is, tell me why He lets the innocent suffer. Why does he permit so much warfare? Why does he allow little children to die? What kind of love is that? And the questions, especially the last two, stabbed Wilfred in a way he had never felt before. And he caught himself on the verge of blurting out, Yes, you religious zealot, answer them and me. And tell us why he lets children die. What sort of love is that? But a strange mental transformation took place in Wilfred's own mind. And he awaited the other man's answer. And then he looked at the two young men and found himself saying this to them. Do you mind if I enter your conversation? I tell you how much God loves you. He gave his only son to die for you. And the young man abruptly interrupted him and argued that it was easy for Wilfred to make some kind of protonic pronouncements disconnected from the concrete world of death and desolation. But Wilfred waited for the appropriate moment because he needed every ounce of courage and conviction to say it just once but to say it clearly. And finally, he got the opportunity. He said, no, 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 my dear friends. I am not distant from the real world of pain and death. And in fact, I'm on this train is because I'm heading home for the funeral of my nine-month-old son. He died just a few hours ago. And he has given the cross a whole new meaning for me now I know what kind of a God it is who loves me a God who willingly gave his son for me and so my friend the cross uniquely uh, reveals not a God who is 
disengaged from the human scene uh, but a God who is right in the middle of our conflicts and struggles and pain. So may this week as we ponder, reflect on uh, the passion week of Jesus dying on the cross, know that He is close to us. He is not disconnected from this world of pain and suffering. Thank you, Lord. Our minds are so finite, um, so limited. Forgive us, Lord. We place you in a box. Uh, we think this mind can unravel everything. But the fact is we can't. Our mind is so small. Could it be that you make your presence known uh, so often by your absence? Could it be that questions sometimes tells us more than answers ever do? Could it be that you would rather die than to live without us? Uh, could it be that the only answer that means anything at all is you, you, you coming to us? Walk on earth 33 years, went through the pain of rejection, suffering, loneliness, and die on the cross alone, all for us. So that we can know that this God we worship knows how we feel. And take comfort, draw strength and to live for you. Thank you, Lord. May this week bring us some good reflection on Jesus dying on the cross for us. Amen. So much we don't know, isn't there? I uh, don't even know how I managed to stay upright each day you know you look at the size of our feet and so small compared to to what it is that they have to hold up and yet we do and uh, I don't need to know because I experience it every day and uh, so it is with Christ if you haven't experienced him yet then today's the day make today the day and don't leave without speaking to someone to find out about the difference that he can make in your life we're going to sing this uh, as we close, How Great Is Our God. The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice all the earth rejoice He wraps Himself in light Darkness tries to hide And trembles at His voice Trembles at His voice How great is our God Sing with me how great God, no one will see how great, how great is our God. Age to age He stands, 